Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Our scripture reading is from Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today I'm going to share a message that is nine months in the making. Uh, and this message is going to just be more honest and raw than usual. So I just ask for your grace in that. But nine months ago, I felt as if God was inviting me to finally really engage the conversation around uh, racism in America and the church's role in it. And I'm sad that it took until I was 40 to really step into that conversation. But most of my life, like 95% of my life, I have lived in predominantly white spaces. Growing up in the suburbs of North Dallas, going to Texas A&M University, not known for its diversity, then going to seminary at Baylor, and then serving at a church in Westlake here in Austin for 10 years before starting uh, with other people, starting this church in Southwest Austin, I have spent most of my time in places where majority of the people were white and that was our context, our understanding, that was the norm. But nine months ago, I felt as if God was prompting me to step out of status quo, step out of comfort and go deeper. And through this experience, I have just been exposed to another world. I've been afflicted, I've been disturbed, and I've been really made uncomfortable. But I've also have been experiencing this incredible transformation. So today I want to share in part what God is has been teaching me and is still teaching me, what I've learned, what I've read, what I've heard from friends. So this message is not going to be on whether racial healing is a part of the gospel. It's not going to be about uh, understanding the uh, the image of God in all people. What I wanted to talk about both today and next week is I want to talk about the question that I've heard from many of you and the one that I'm wrestling with in my own life, which is what now? Like what now? Like what now after seeing a man being choked to death on the streets as he cried out for his mother? Like what now? What now after being exposed to the collective trauma that the black community in America has experienced? What now? Like what now after uh, cities across our country have been lit by, by anger and fear with cries of desperation? What now? So when I hear that, that question, what now? What I've started to hear is a prayer. What I've started to hear is a prayer, God, I need to know what now. I need to know what to do and how to respond in this. And uh, our scripture reading that we had today, Romans 12, is a beautiful answer 
to that work of what now? Romans 12 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So when we're asking what now, we're we're really asking is, God, I want to know your will. I want to know your good, pleasing, and perfect will. And what Paul is writing to the church of Rome is if you want to arrive there, if you want to have clarity on that, then you need to no longer conform to the patterns of your world. And for Rome, it's this empire. You can no longer conform to the empire that is here, this kingdom that is here. You need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That means that we can't just think the same thoughts and expect to come to a conclusion of knowing God's will. Like we have to allow God to renew and transform our minds so that we can see clearly and together figure out what is God calling us to do. So after months and months of reading and listening and learning from uh, black men and women, theologians, pastors, authors, uh, I just I, I want to I share how I feel led to answer that what now. And I want to share that in, in hopes that maybe it will help some of us in our community. It really comes down to four different steps. First is awareness, then lament, submission, and then finally action. So next week, we're, gonna, we're really going to focus on the, those final two steps, submission and action. But this week, we're going to look at uh, the important steps of awareness and lament, but especially considering the important first step of awareness. I think it's important to note that the first step is not action. And many of us, like that's what we, that's what we want. Like, what can I do? How can I help fix this? Which honestly says more about our, the, the position that we usually have in society where we think that we are just people who can run after things and fix things. But instead, what, what people of color are really asking for white communities to do is to begin by just becoming aware. Like, just learn for a while. Stop and listen. Become attentive of, of what's around you. Prayerfully consider what it's, what it's like to be a person of color in America today. And so rather than running after and things and chasing the solutions, I believe that our first step is to become a more aware. Even the ability to begin by asking questions without even surmising the answers. Just sitting with it for a while. Because once we become more aware, we'll begin to understand a lot of the assumptions that we had were wrong. For instance, for me, I believe that one of the greatest foes to growing in awareness is not overt racism. It is a self-declared colored blindness. I used to think that being colorblind was the goal for any Christian. Like not seeing the differences between people. Like I, you know, I treat everyone the same, every community, every group of people the same. And what I've realized is that's not what the world is asking for. Instead, what people of color are asking for, for white communities to do is to not be colorblind, but to actually see. Like to see, to be aware and attentive, to learn, to see George Floyd act, you know, being pinned to the ground by four different police officers as he slowly dies. 
to see the youth, the youth in that video who instinctively know that they should start recording this moment. Because if, if not, how would there be justice? And to hear their voices actually plead with them to, t- t- to check his pulse. And like all, throughout all nine minutes of that video, like we need to learn to see the intimidation that communities of color have learned to live with. And what is so much more difficult is to learn to see the systems by which this can continue to happen in 2020. This racial division and hierarchy that we have in our society that seems to be somewhat veiled from us, we need to learn to see every double standard that exists in our culture. I think colorblindness might be one of the greatest allies to the racialized society because blindness creates the space where unexamined racism flourishes. Colorblindness actually creates and fosters this ability to, for us to have the tragic sound of silence and indifference when it comes to racism in our midst. And when we believe that we're colorblind, we can say that, oh, well, I'm not racist. I'm not the problem. But the person who, who has that colorblindness, they don't realize that they have to be part of the change, that the change has to start within them and that should be activated in our world. So another way of saying it is colorblindness leads to apathy. So we need to learn to see so that we will, won't be apathetic, but we'll be people of radical and generous compassion with a huge appetite for justice in our world. And how do we know that colorblindness is rooted in privilege? Because no community of color praises it. It is a white thing. <laughs> no community of color aspires to be colorblind because they know the importance of seeing. So for these last months, I have slowed down and I have paid attention when people of color and friends have shared to me what it's like to be black in America. And this awareness has pulled back a veil to things that I did not know. I heard a, a black man say that he, he won't walk his neighborhood if his uh, young daughter or his lab, uh, Labrador won't walk with him. Because he knows that being a black man like that is threatening to his community. And so the only, well, only way he'll take a walk is if his dog or his daughter will come with him. I've heard a black mother, uh, she's a friend of mine, ask me, Uh, Did your parents ever have to give you drills on what happens when you get pulled over, especially when you didn't do anything wrong? And I said, no. And she said, I started doing that with my my boys at a young age, and we did it often because I knew one day it would happen to them. I heard uh, a friend of mine say that he, he loses sleep over the day where his cute little black son becomes somehow threatening to our society. You know, all these things were foreign to me. I've never thought or experienced any of that. I was blind to it. Uh, I had the privilege to be blind to it. And this needs to change. Like I'm reminded of Paul's words to the church in Rome that we cannot conform to the pattern of this world. 
We must grow more and more aware of the patterns of this world to see the patterns by which we pay lip service to life, liberty, and justice for all. We need to see the pattern that we see in this world that one out of every three black men in America will spend some time in prison. In the sentences that they are given, there's disparity, such disparity on the equal, uh, equal crimes and, and, and unequal sentences that are given between white men and black men. We need to see the pattern of this world of systemic inequality, of pay, of housing, education, and provision that communities of color receive. So the Bible is imploring us to see the ways of this world, see the patterns of this world, and be nonconformists. Be filled with courage to not conform, but actually to, to by the Holy Spirit's power, have our minds transformed so that we can see this world differently. And by seeing this world differently, being able to see what God's will is for us. That awareness can transform us. But we also need to move beyond just awareness of what's going on here and now. There's a deeper question too. As a friend said to me today, he said, man, I just don't understand how we got here as a nation. So part of this journey is to look back for us not just to be futurists, but also to be historians. 401 years ago was the first time where African slave, their feet hit the soil of America. And this legacy and this wound has been with us ever since. 401 years ago, uh, Africans were stripped uh, away from their villages in Africa, systematically separated from their families and their tribes, and dropped in, with, with such disorientation to our country. And the first thing that they were declared was chattel. That's a word that describes property. So this is how we got here. So the very beginning experience of people of color in America was that we made them inhuman. They were seen and given the same value as oxen and as carts. And so that is the soil by which this problem has grown. And it is still with us. Even at the end of slavery, things did not change as lawyer and author Brian Stevenson has shared, there is this invisible thread. Slavery did not end in 1865, it just evolved. That invisible thread now went from uh, slavery now to a time called the lynching era. After emancipation, now the black community was free, but now they no longer were seen as valuable by the white community. And no longer now were they protected by their white owner. And so any time, a white person wanted a black person dead, they could do so. And lynchings took place all the time. We now know of 5,000 documented cases where there is someone lynched in America. And it's not only that, but schools would shut down. So kids could go with their families and have a picnic to watch somebody lynched and hanging from a tree. This happened all over our country. It happened in Austin, Texas. 1894, a young white girl was sick. Medical professionals were brought in, including one black nurse. This girl ended up dying. So, of course, who gets the blame? The black nurse. An angry white mob forms. They find her, and she happens to be with two men. And they're lynched. No trial, no jury. And the thread continues. It continues from, uh, from that era. It continues into the Jim Crow era and segregation where racial hierarchies are formed now and codified in law. 
And then it went from, from there to the ghetto, and then now to the modern day ghetto, which is the industrial prison complex. We need to see and be aware that this is not just emerging in 2020, but this is a part of the legacy. We need to start seeing this. And I know it's hard to see this, but it's part of our healing. I'm reminded of that in Numbers 21. It's a story that might seem bizarre, but the Hebrew people had turned from God. And as they turned from God, there's snakes that happened that came all through their camp and that were killing them. And so they then turned to God and asked for God to heal them and save them. And so what does God do? Something completely odd. He tells Moses to, to make a bronze serpent and put it on a stick and raise it up. And if anyone looks at this serpent, uh, they will be healed. What a bizarre way to find healing. Like actually look at the thing that's killing you. But I think the story is teaching us something. That for us, if we want to find healing, if we want to find some, some sort of restoration in our community, we need to learn to foresee the thing that has brought so much suffering and pain and death. We must find healing first by actually looking at what has caused so much division and by truly seeing it for what it is that there might be the beginnings of healing. This is why awareness is the first step that I'm going to take. But we know that that kind of awareness is hard, that there's a temptation to sidestep it, to deny it. It's difficult. I know that even for me this last week, I was just so, uh, so tired from just seeing everything, engaging this conversation. I was so uh, just, I was getting fatigued by this. I was just getting exhausted. And I thought to myself, man, I need to take a break. I need to call a timeout uh, from this to regroup. And when I, when I thought that, I was reminded of a line from the Reverend Julian DeShazer who said, privilege is the ability to walk away. You see, some people, just, they just don't have the privilege to walk away. When, you know, when they get fatigued or tired, to call a timeout. Because this is just the reality of their lives. So we need to fight the temptation when things get difficult. Fight the temptation just to kind of to close our eyes and put our head in the sand and just like seek. Oh, I, just, I, I can just step out of this. It's almost like I'm, I can, I'm going to choose ignorance. Like, you know, that idea of ignorance is bliss. No, ignorance is privilege and it's hurtful. It's not helpful. It won't bring about healing. You know, I was reading uh, from an ECC pastor, someone from our denomination, a uh, pastor named Brenda Salter McNeil, and she actually has a roadmap for how to have racial healing. And she talks about this awareness as a crisis. It creates a crisis, and we can go one of two different ways. Either one, we could go into preservation, where we don't allow for that significant change to take place. And in preservation, a narrative is chosen that reinforces status quo, and power is protected, stability is maintained. But on the other hand, we also could go into transformation, where we actually are willing to, to live as living sacrifices, where we can actually to step into the unknown, and what we experience is transformation and maybe even a renewing of the mind. Before we can move on from the historic presence of racism, we need to look at it. Before we can move to action where we fix this problem, we actually need to set our gaze upon it to look at the lynching tree, to look at the overpopulated prisons, at the ghetto that mirrors Jim Crow and start asking why. Like why are our neighborhoods, our schools, our churches uh, still so segregated? And though the truth might be really unsettling, it is the truth that will set us free 
and that hopefully will bring healing to all. You know, I've been, I've been thinking about an experience I had with my daughter a couple months ago as I was preparing this message. I was reading this book, uh, this wonderfully tragic, powerful book by James Cone called The Cross and the Lynching Tree. So in, in this book, the author is, uh, is not only sharing about the lynchings that took place in America, but is making this theological connection between those lynchings and Jesus's, the tree which Jesus died upon, Jesus's own lynching, and uh, making that connection of, uh, of the power that Jesus gives in that act. And, uh, but it was dinner time, so I shut the book, put it down, go have dinner. After dinner begins our nightly routine of our negotiations with our kids to try to get them to go to their bed and stay in their bed. I'm taking care of the, our, our eldest. She's the smartest one. And so she knows all the, all the different tricks. And so this night she said, hey, uh, can you teach me a game from your childhood? Just for a couple minutes, just one couple minutes. And I go, all right. So look around her room. She has a dry erase board. So I decided oh, I'll teach her a game we used to play called Hangman. And so I, you know, think of, you know, a word, I put all the dashes down, and it wasn't until we finished, I finished drawing this man that I looked at, this, this figure hanging from a noose, and I thought to myself, what in the world am I doing? Like how this symbol can mean this little to me that not only am I making it a play toy, but I'm teaching it to my daughter? Like this, like the novelty of this moment. Oh my God, I'm so blind. I can't believe I've never seen this before. I'm so naive to this. And I just begin thinking like, God, you're gonna, have to, you're gonna have to teach me so much. There's so much that I just don't see. There's so much I'm blind to. That my friend is just a picture of the blindness that I know that's in my heart and my mind. That I know that I need the renewing power from Jesus that he wants to meet us in places of our blindness so that we can see clearly. You know, this is what Jesus wants to do in our life. But it doesn't only just end there. It's not just so that we're aware, but Jesus wants to invite us into another step. And I think it's that we, we would learn to lament. Lamenting is a type of prayer. It's, it's somewhat similar to confession. You know, we, when we have our prayers of confession, we shed light on our sin and our brokenness. I think that's really important in this conversation, uh, but I think we also need to discover what it means to lament together. Lamenting is a practice rooted primarily in our scriptures, our holy scripture. Uh, there are psalms, whole psalms that are called psalms of lament, where the community of, of, of people of God would come together and just pray hard prayers, wondering, God, why is it taking so long? Like pressing in towards God together. We have a whole book of our Bible called Lamentations. And so I think this is trying to teach us, the Bible is trying to teach us, it is a sacred act to come together and come to God with our honesty, our frustration, our doubt, our, 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 uh, our suffering, our mourning, for us to come to God with that, that God wants to receive that, and that, that there actually might, that might actually be a part of the healing experience. But this is so unfamiliar to the American church. We would rather take anthems of praise where we rehearse our victory in Jesus over lamenting with each other. I think this actually tells us more about uh, our position and our privilege because communities of color and communities all around the world that have gone through deep suffering, they know how to lament together. Like they know how to sit in sadness and mourning and frustration and, and, and press into God, but not us. 
Like instead, what we are used to is uh, reveling in our personal salvation project. Like for us to consider what Jesus has done for me, my salvation, my victory, my deliverance. And lamenting is different. Lamenting is seeing the suffering that is happening in our community, in our world, and learning to pray and to, and to bring that into the sacred act of, of communing with God. Uh, an, an author I read was helpful for me in learning what does it mean for us to lament together. Daniel Hill, he wrote, Lament gives us permission to admit that we aren't capable of fixing and may have been a part of causing the problems we've suddenly become awakened to. Lament gives us resources to sit in the tension of suffering and pain without going to a place of shame or self-hate. Lament allows us to acknowledge the limitations of human strength and to look solely to the power of God instead. So we lament, like we, we do this because it's an act of faith. We cry out to God because we believe that God hears and cares for us. It teaches us how to be honest with ourselves and with our community. And I think it's so important right now because I know for many of us that we are we don't speak up much because we don't know what to say. We're afraid of saying the wrong thing, saying something stupid. And what ends up happening is we're silent and that silence is deafening to the black community. So we need to learn to lament. We need to learn to do that because lamenting is not some trite platitude or deflection. It's actually the sacred act of confession and mourning. So that's what we're going to do now. We're going to end uh, this time with a time we're going to pray prayers of lament. Before we do that, I want to just renew our minds with just the simple truth of who God is. I was reminded uh, of a name that God has from a story in Genesis 16 this past week. It's a story about a woman named Hagar who, uh, she was a slave. She was a racial minority. She was exploited and abused. She was then abandoned and sent away on her own. And she, uh, when she was alone and rejected, when she felt like there's no one else there, God showed up. She had an encounter with the divine and Hagar in this moment, she gave God a name, the God who sees. Hagar had this encounter and declared that God is the one who sees. So though we might need to grow in our, in our own awareness, we just need to remember that God sees. He's not blind to the suffering and oppression that people are experiencing. He's not clueless to the sorrow that, that people have in this moment and in our nation today. God sees. And Jesus, our lynched Savior, He did not come to this world to offer cheap solidarity, but He laid down Himself as a living sacrifice to show us that indeed that He will loose the chains of injustice to break every yoke and set the captive free. And that is all of us. So in view of that kind of mercy, may we not rush to action, but may we learn to see. May we have a journey of awareness that includes prayers of lament and so that we could learn how we can partner with God to bring about justice and healing in this world.